So let's turn to the Word as we grow old before our eyes. All right, we're in 2 Peter, talking about character development, how people change. I've said that this book, very briefly, presents two types of people who know the Lord. One person is a person who keeps Christ central, who says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on a daily basis, who lives under the authority of the Bible the centrality of Christ. And Peter says about these people, they are productive, they are fruitful, they don't stumble, and they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant when they go to meet the Lord. He also says there are people who work out their salvation as they make their calling and their election sure. So they glory in the goodness of the assurance of salvation. But there's another person that is a believer and uh, Christ is in his or her life, but Christ is not the central focus. And so as Christ is not the central focus, as the world pressures them, Peter says they become forgetful. They become unproductive. They become unfruitful. And they just stumble. And so he's exhorting the church to be people who develop under the lordship of Christ. And so people change as they continually are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they live out the reality of their life under the finished and complete work of Christ on the cross for their sin. And out of gratitude, they produce a character that reflects Christ. And that's what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, you've received a faith of equal standing with ours and by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, this grace and peace Verse 2, have been multiplied in your life. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And it says, because of all these things that God has done for you, the greatness of your salvation, the present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit and given you grace and peace, because of that, make every effort to add to your faith moral excellence and to moral excellence knowledge and then self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, you add love. And he says, you do that out of gratitude to the Lord. One of the old confessions of faith talks about the importance of good works. And he says, when, when we do good works as the fruit of the root of our faith, it's the response of gratitude. We express our thankfulness to the living God. We strengthen our assurance and our joy before him that we belong to him. We build up our brothers and our sisters. Isn't it great to see people who love Christ and serve others because of him? We make the gospel of Christ beautiful to those around us. The Bible says we adorn the gospel. And we stop the mouths of detractors as their light shines before men. And we glorify the living God. That's a lot of reasons to live with an attitude of thankful fruit bearing. But let me just say this. It all comes from the finished work of Christ upon the cross. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, your sins are covered. We just sang here and in the gym this great song uh, entitled, Oh, My Soul Arise. Let me just read the words of the first stanza. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. I love that. Shake off your guilty fears. See, none of us measures up. So it says, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. 
Before the throne, my surety stands. Or the one who took my place. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Arise my soul. So, so I, I say, church, as you, as you see the gospel, shake off your guilty fears. You're complete in Christ. So everything we do in fruit bearing is a result of understanding by the Holy Spirit, the finished work of Jesus on the cross for my sins. Now, example, this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Forty days, not counting the Sundays, between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. It's observed in many liturgical churches, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, these churches all say this is not a biblical standard, but it's something to help us remember what Christ has done as we walk in repentance and as we maybe give up something during Lent. See, the, the problem, though, with Ash Wednesday or any other discipline is that some people just forget the gospel. And they think that if I go somewhere and get some ashes on my forehead and give up something for Lent, then somehow I will earn God's favor and be on his good list. And that is not the gospel. That is emptying the gospel of its power. The only way to earn God's favor is to look to the one who did it on the cross for your sins. So, so conversely, there are those who get the gospel and they say, I walk in repentance or penance because I want to repeatedly tap into the joy that is mine in Jesus. I want to get rid of things that block my vision of Christ and my obedience because joy and hope and life is found in Christ. So I don't do these things to earn God's favor. I do these things because God has poured favor into my life. So, so the non-gospel, the gospel. The non-gospel, the gospel. So, so we change as we continually are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk before the Lord, understanding and appropriating the finished work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Listen, shake off your guilty fears by looking to the cross. Nobody's omnicompetent. Nobody is perfect. Uh, in fact, many of us live on a, a, a treadmill. We do. We just, we just go, go, go. Harder and harder. I got to do. I got to. I got to. I got to. And that's a terrible way to live. Shake off your guilty fears. And that's why I love in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says this, verse 21. He's writing as a believer, I think. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, he says, you know, I, I, I delight in the things of God, but at times I live a different way. Then he says this, this great plea of mercy. Wretched man, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of of this death. And he says, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says, next chapter, chapter 8, next breath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and the law of death. And then he says this in verse 3. For what the law, or my self-effort, was powerless to do, in that 
It was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That's the gospel. What I could never do, God did through the work of Christ. And so we live out of gratitude. Shake off your guilty fears. Rejoice in the gospel of grace. I was reading Isaiah 61 recently and just this beautiful passage about the coming realities that will be ours. It says that, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, verse 1, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of the vengeance of our God and to, to comfort those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. You go, you know, how, how, how are you given the oil of gladness instead of mourning? How are you given a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit? How is this accomplished? And then you go to the New Testament, and you open the Bible to Luke chapter 4. And this very passage was read in a synagogue one day by Jesus. He reads this passage about turning from mourning to dancing and from gloom to joy and being an oak of righteousness. And he reads it, and he rolls up the scroll, and he hands it to the attendant, and he sits down. And the Bible says that all the eyes in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And Jesus says, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. So it's in Christ that these things are accomplished. So, so we do character development out of reverence, joy, and the glory of knowing Christ. Which brings us to our text for today in 2 Peter chapter 1. So listen to the scripture. I'm going to start in verse 16. Go through verse 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him in the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in this text, Peter says, I want to underscore what I'm asking you to do because I want to tell you, he said, that I was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. And I saw the Lord become in his raiment white as snow. And I saw Moses and Elijah come down. And as they talked to the Lord about the hope of the covenantal ages, 
the law and the prophets fulfilled on the cross, and I heard a voice boom from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We heard it. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. He says, we, we don't follow cleverly devised myths. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. It really happened. And he says, history is going somewhere. So we live this way because a great day is coming. And the Mount of Transfiguration was a foretaste of the second coming and the glory that will be ours in the Lord. See, the false teachers, we're going to be talking about the false teachers in Asia Minor the next couple of weeks. The false teachers had this ongoing, recurring, thematic song. And it's in chapter 3, verse 3 and following. He says this, that, that scoffers will arise following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation on and on and on. He says, you know, history is going, not going anywhere. History is just this cacophonic nothingness. It goes on and on and on and on. And Peter says, don't believe him. He says the Mount of Transfiguration was a foresignifying of what Christ will do in glory. And so we live this way because of the hope of heaven. We live this way because we were eyewitnesses of that which foresignified the coming glory. And there's a book written 20-some years ago by a man who was professor at Charleston Southern and later went to Baylor University. His name was Chip Conyers, a delightful man. And it's entitled uh, The Eclipse of Heaven. And Chip said that shortly after Hugo, he and his family went to a state park above Somerville. And he said that there was a park employee there who walked them through the park and they stopped at a old, old, old graveyard. And in that graveyard was the, was the burial place of someone who died in the Revolutionary War period. In fact, he said that there were places on the tombstone where the British had, had sharpened their swords and, and it was very old. And, and the guy stopped and he said, now this time I'm going to read to you from something that you would hear if you had been alive in that day. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. He says, the Anglican Prayer Journal in, from 1768. And then he says this, in the grave tones, and with expansive gestures of mock seriousness, he began, quote, man is born of a woman, and he hath but a short time to live. And Conyers says, the young man adjusted his wire-rimmed glasses. He cleared his throat and went on. In the midst of life, we are in death of whom may we seek for comfort but thee, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. He says, then waving a hand out to the crowd and holding a bit of paper in it, he went on, thunder in his voice now, thou knowest, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Shut not thy merciful ears to our prayers, but spare us, we beseech thee, O Lord, that in our last hours of pains of death, we fall not from thee. And then Chip says, he looked up and he winked. He winked. And he says, he was startled by that. He said what he was saying in essence is that's what they believed in 17 and 80 or 90. But we no longer believe that today. And that, that church, that's the culture we live in. The culture we live in has the refrain from chapter 3. Now, where's his coming? Life has no meaning. Life just goes on and on and on. It, it has no sense of rhyme or reason. 
there's a movie or a TV show called Parenthood, and I've watched it hit and missed uh, occasionally through the, not much. And then someone said, you've got to see season six, the last season. And it's about a family of four children, a mom and a dad, and they're all married. They live, they have children. They live in Berkeley, California. And, and season six is, is a wonderful, it's a wonderful season. It's about family dynamic and reconciliation. It's about sickness and surgery and the surgery not going well and then approaching death and the patriarch is a guy named Zeke who's just a lovable curmudgeon he and his wife and their tender relationship it is a wonderful show but as, as, as I watched the show and it was well done well done they dealt with death and family issues and relationships and grandkids and a great-grandchild and all of these things. They dealt with the surgery and the approaching death and the reality of death. And not one time in the whole season did somebody say, hey, maybe we ought to stop and say, um, the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. Is that, is that the way it goes? Maybe somebody should kind of pray if there is a God that maybe it'd be, she, it would be good to us. Nothing. Nothing. A total view of life that is nothing more than the here, today, and nothing else. And that's the culture we live in. And really, if, 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 if the reality of heaven isn't rich, and if death isn't real, and if there's not a coming judgment, then everything the apostles said, everything the Bible teaches, and everything that we stand for collapses to the ground. And so, as I was Think about that. I was reading Psalm 37 and kind of meditating on Psalm 37. Let me read just part of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is really about, it says, don't fret. Don't be overly concerned, overly constrained. Don't blow your mind. He says this. David says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Don't fret. And then he says again in verse 70, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil desires because his day is coming. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. Don't fret. And then he says this, but do these things. Listen. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Be faithful. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. You walk before your father. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse 8, again, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Verse 12 and 13, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. There is a day coming called the day of judgment. And those who trust in the Lord and look to Christ go to heaven, and those who have not go to judgment. You can trust God to be faithful to judge his own. And see, this, this is what Peter's saying. I uh, fret not. Shake off your guilty fears. Fret not. I love dogs. Uh, and I recently was reading some material by a guy named Dean Kuntz. I read some of his books I think they're fun books. And but Dean Koontz loves dogs, and he's had one golden retriever after another. He loves golden retrievers. And this is uh, supposedly a letter from his dog, Trixie, about life. It's just I thought it was interesting. It's kind of like fret not, okay? 
It says, hello again. It's me, Trixie Kuntz, dog and happy cookie eater. Why is it so hard for humans to learn to see beauty everywhere? One reason is desire. Humans mostly think about what they want next. Always thinking about what is wanted next will keep you living in the future and never in the beautiful present tense or now. You can't see the beauty of the world which is in the now because you're full of desires for what you want next Tuesday. Dogs never know what comes next. We're always surprised. It might be skin infection. It might be an entire meatloaf dropped on the floor. You want to know a secret? You can't control the future either. Here, come, here it comes. Skin infection or a meatloaf on the floor. So the rhythm of life. Meatloaf, skin infection, bag of potato chips left on a lower table. Meteor through the roof. I've got good news. There's always more meatloaf on the floor than meteors through the roof. <laughs> and I read that and I thought, you know, that's kind of a statement. Don't fret. But the psalmist says, don't fret because God is God. And he watches over us. And he can be trusted. And then Peter says with great clarity, he says, you know, he says, we don't follow some cleverly invented myth. But we were eyewitnesses to the majestic glory. We were there. We were there. It's a historic faith. I think of the, the Apostle John in writing a group of people called the Docetics in 1 John where he says, you know, people say that Jesus was a phantom God, that he really wasn't in flesh and blood. He said, listen, so let me tell you a secret. We touched his body. We touched his body. He wasn't a phantom God. Or I think of the Apostle Paul who, who says in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's defending the glory of the resurrection, he said, if you don't believe my word that this Jesus rose from the dead, there are 500 men who saw the resurrected Christ. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. It really happened. It really happened. So if you read modern day historical theology and the history of theology, you'll read about a man who died in 1834, named Friedrich Schleimacher. And Friedrich Schleimacher, people say, is sometimes the, called the, modern, the father of modern-day theology. And that he pushed us to mysticism and to a non-historical faith. Schleimacher said something like this. He said, it makes no difference if Jesus really rose from the dead or if Jesus really ascended into heaven. It makes no difference if you really die on the cross. What's important is that individuals have feeling, intuition, and experience. We believe in experience, not doctrine. I'm just saying that's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament says, yes, we have feeling and we experience, have experience because it flows from the doctrine of the reality of the historical Jesus. And so people have fallen in his train, Bultmann and others, who say, you know, it really makes no difference just that you've experienced Christ in your heart. And I think the apostles would look at these men and go, what are you talking about? Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. It's not some cleverly invented myth. The same Jesus who was transfigured and died on the cross and rose again and ascended into heaven is coming back. And I was interested this past week, I read an article about Senator Bernie Sanders running for, for president and he gave an interview 
And he said this in his interview in New Hampshire. Now, Sanders has a Jewish background, but he said time after time throughout his political career, I'm Jewish by heritage, but it has no binding effect on my life. And so many people just assumed that he would be a friend of the non-God crowd, but he gave this interview, and this crushed some of his friends. And he said this. He was asked at a town hall in New Hampshire, um, what about religion? This is what he said. He said, religion is the guiding principle in my life. Absolutely. Then we'll pick up the quote here. Everybody practices religion in a different way. To me, I would not be here tonight. I would not be running for president of the United States if I did not have strong, very strong religious and spiritual feelings, close quote. Now, that's the statement by Schleimacher. In other words, my religion cannot be defined because it's just a feeling. And my religious feelings cannot be transferred because it's just a feeling. So I'm not to teach the next generation because it's a very personal thing. It's just between me and the God, however you may want to define him. The issue is the New Testament will not allow us to get away with that. I read a book years ago about a man who was visiting professor at Brigham Young University. And, and he was an evangelical who loved the gospel. And as he got to know some of the faculty, he just became very dear friends with them. And he said late in the year, they started having these intense conversations. And he said to these Mormon teachers, he said, do, do you really believe some of the stuff that you people say you believe? I mean, hidden tablets, so forth. And they said, no, we really don't believe that. Uh, but we do believe there are helpful myths they give cohesion to our Mormon culture. We can never say that as Christians. We don't say, you know, we, we celebrate Easter and Christmas and uh, Lent and we do this stuff because it gives cohesion. We say, no, we do this because it's true. We do this because the tomb is empty. We do this because if you'd been there on the day that Jesus was crucified and run your hand over the cross... You'd have splinters in your hands. It really happened. We really believe that Jesus is God. And we really believe this incredible news. Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Now, some people say, well, maybe he didn't do that. Maybe Jesus just started sharing his food and everybody else spontaneously was, were convicted to share it. And when they got finished, they took up 12 basketfuls and took it to the homeless center and put on Echo Love Your Mother bumper stickers on their burls. You know, I said, no, no. We really believe that Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. We really believe in Luke chapter 5 when some men lowered in Mark chapter 2 a man on a pallet and Christ looked at the man on the pallet who was paralyzed and the Pharisees were sitting in the front row and Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees were scandalized. He said, what, what are you talking about? Nobody can forgive sin but God. They said that. He says, Jesus perceiving their thoughts said, which is it easier? Which is easier to say, my son, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. He said, obviously, take up your mat and walk because my, your sins are forgiven. It's an internal thing. He says, but so that you'll know I can do both because I'm God. Your sins are forgiven. And take up your mat and walk. And he got up and he walked out. It really happened. It really happened. The tomb is really empty. Peter was an eyewitness to the transfiguration. 
so this woman is somebody I've enjoyed reading through the years. Her name is Flannery O'Connor. She was from Millersville, Georgia. And she wrote some incredible things. She died at an early age of lupus, and she was a celebrated writer during her life, which oftentimes does not happen, but she was celebrated during her life. But she tells a story in her collection of letters, a big book full of her letters, that she was one time early in her career invited to a dinner party with a group of, she says, capital B, big, capital I intellectuals, which is a way of poking fun at them. And she said, these big intellectuals were talking about everything. A woman named Mary McCarthy was there who just written a book, and her, her husband, Mr. Broadwater. And as they talked and as they chatted and as they spent time together, uh, the hours went on. And she said, this is, I thought this was really good. She said, I don't know why I was there. And then she says this. She said, it's like uh, having me there was like having a dog present who had been trained to say a few words but overcome with inadequacy had forgotten them. You know, she says, I was there, but I was, I was kind of, I couldn't find my voice because I was just a little girl from Millsville, Georgia with these socialites and these big intellectuals. And then, and then said, the hostess, Mrs. Broadwater, talked about the Christian faith. And she said, when she was a young woman, she left the Catholic Church, she left all faith, and she doesn't believe in anything now. But occasionally she said, I'd like to go back to church and take the Lord's Supper, because I just find that it gives me some sense of meaning, even though I don't believe any of it. And this is what Flannery O'Connor says. I thought, this is really fun. She says, I said then, in a very shaky voice, well, if it's just a symbol, to hell with it. <laughs> That's a good way to end a dinner conversation, you know. Just, 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 if it's just a symbol, you know, to hell with it. And says, she says, that was all the defense I was capable of, but I realize now that, that this is all I will ever be able to say, except that it is the center of existence for me. All of the rest of life is expendable. Wow. Wow. It happened. If it's just a symbol, big deal. But it happened. And Peter says, we don't follow cleverly invented myths. We were eyewitnesses. And then, and then he says, very quickly, I know my time is gone. He says, you, you live this out by being anchored in the word. And this wonderful statement about the word, he says, just in part, he says, you must pay attention. If you're going to be anchored, you must pay attention to the word as a lamp that shines in a very dark place until the, the, the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus comes again. You've you got to be dogmatically attached to the beauty of the apostolic message. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to let the Word be in your heart. You've got to sing it and memorize it and think about it. You've got to be in the Word of God because it gives you an anchor. And, and you know, I, I thought of Psalm 1 which says that, 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 that a man who's in the Word, a woman who's in the Word, he meditates on it day and night. He says, he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. All he does prospers, not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Said, they have no roots. We're rooted. If, if you want to change, be rooted in the word under the lordship of Christ and the glory of the cross by the power of the spirit. Or, or I think of, 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 of Psalm 37 where, where the psalmist says this. He says, he says, don't fret, don't fret, don't fret. And then he says this. He says, the law of the Lord is in his heart. His steps do not slip. He says he, he may fall, but doesn't fall beyond remedy. He gets up because the law of, of his God is in 
his heart. And then I thought about 2 Timothy chapter 3, that one on passage where Paul says, evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, but you continue in what you've learned, Timothy, and how you've learned these things from a child because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, able to do every good work. I thought about 2 Corinthians 4 this morning, and I was just praying through it, and I said, you know, 2 Corinthians 4 says, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is just temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I thought about last week, this time, a dear woman in her church named Rosie Cumby was struggling with life, and she died, and she's, since last Sunday, she's in heaven. Isn't that something? Boom. That's her hope. So, Back to, the, back to this show. Then one story and I'm done. So here's my criticism of, of parenthood. Their last name is Braverman. They're such a cool bunch of people, I'm thinking about changing my last name to Braverman. First of all, it's a really nice name. I like the name Braverman. Um, but here, here's my criticism of, of parenthood. When you, when you watch the show, people get angry with each other, but it's always always taken care of within 48 minutes, counting commercials. That's not life. In this family, they have all these different people, but they just kind of get along fine. There's no uncle that embarrasses everybody every time the family gets together. Everybody here has an uncle or a cousin that you're praying will not come to Thanksgiving dinner. We all do. Don't be embarrassed. We all have them. We do. There, there's no alcohol abuse in this extended family. No substance abuse in this extended family. Listen, that's not normal. There's immorality, but hey, they just got over it. It's no big deal. Let's go on. That's not normal. There's brokenness and sorrow in every family. Only in parenthood in Berkeley, California, are there no ripples. Their family theme song is Home on the Range, where never is said a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. That is not normal. You live in a fallen world. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Man is a crowning work of God's creation, but we're fallen people who need grace. We need an anchor. We need an anchor. Because history's coming to a close. Why, why, why are you forgiving why do we forgive people? Well, Ephesians says, get rid of all anger and malice and, and brawling and be forgiving because God has forgiven you in Jesus. That's why. So, this is President's Weekend. One of my favorite people in all history is George Washington. I said, George Washington, after the Revolutionary War, before he was president, once made a tour of the colonies, and he made a tour of the colonies after he was president to hold the, the, these disparate colonies or states together. And there's recently been a, a book written by a guy named T.H. Breen entitled George Washington's Journey. And George Washington traveled to all the states, all the colonies, and as you no, it was very difficult. Roads had potholes. If there were roads, there was no interstate. It was an arduous journey. George Washington stayed in public inns, the author says, and he ate terrible food and stayed in bad beds. He went from town to town. 
And the first couple of towns, for a while, he would follow this great entourage of troops who were accompanying him, and he was dirty within an hour, drinking dirt. And from that point forward, he'd get up an hour before and slip away before they went so he wouldn't be dirty all the time. We came to a place called Salisbury, North Carolina, close to where I grew up, and he was going to go to the town. And, of course, it was scheduled, and there was a horde of people there to meet him, and he wanted to stop on the outskirts of the town. And he wanted to refresh himself and get a glass of water so he could go and then meet all the people and, and be on top of his game. So he went to this random house, according to this author, on the outskirts of Salisbury, North Carolina. On horseback, he stopped at a house, knocked on the door, and he asked for water. The 12-year-old girl who answered the door complained that she was home alone. The rest of her family, mom and dad and brothers, had gone to town to see the president. And she said, quote, I do so wish I could have seen him because I've always wanted to meet General Washington. Washington, it says, was taken aback and simply said, Madam, General Washington is before you now. You know, six, three and a half, and you go, come on in, President Washington. And she gave him lemonade, and man, how cool would that be? And I can see her 60 years later sitting with her grandchildren saying, you know, have I ever told you about the day that I had lunch with General Washington? <laughs> Me and General Buds, man. I thought about this, you know, really six foot three and a half, incredible man, 12-year-old girl, Salisbury, North Carolina. What an honor. One much greater than George Washington, the one who spoke the heavens into being, will one day receive us. He will. And if we live with diligence and love under the cross of Jesus, Peter says we'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom, and we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that happens as we root our lives in the glorious historicity and reality of all that God is for us in Jesus.